Welcome to Kels Talks, the podcast where we'll be discussing events and topics to do with knowledge, education, lifestyle and society. I'm your host Kelsey Francis and this week's episode looks at all things Brexit, including an overview of the European Union, the pros and cons of the agreed deal and the outlook for 2021 onwards. Stay tuned. Brexit is one of the topics that prompted me to create this podcast. Since 2016, it's been mess after mess, lie after lie, and argument after argument about who's right and who's wrong, and this has started the spike in division across the country. I'm not the oldest, but in all my years, I've never actually seen one word cause so much exhaustion. And what I want to do today is break down Brexit in layman's terms so that everyone can understand the unnecessarily complicated aspects. I also want to discuss the referendum and why people thought Brexit was a good idea while drawing on stats to show how people feel now. And lastly, I want to take a deep dive into the deal we've agreed and highlight some of the key points while explaining the arguments for and against it. I think the best way to start this is to explain what the European Union is, what they do, and just give a bit of a timeline of how they formed so that you lot can understand why we joined them in the first place and then kind of weigh up the pros and cons of why people decided to leave. The European Economic Community was formed in 1957 after years of discussions from visionaries including England's beloved Winston Churchill, who argued that a United States of Europe would guarantee peace across the continent. The UK waited 16 years to join and eventually did in 1973 after the 60s presented stable economic growth amongst EU countries. In the following years, the EU began to pump money into creating jobs and infrastructure in poorer areas, and this was followed by a fight against pollution, which was significant at the time, and EU citizens were empowered to elect their members in 1979. In 86, the Single European Act was signed when Spain and Portugal joined, which saw the creation of the single market. The Berlin Wall was torn down a few years later, which unified Germany for the first time in 28 years and announced a collapse of communism across Central and Eastern Europe. In 93, the single market was completed with what was described as the four freedoms, which were the movement of goods, services, people and money. The EU supported millions of young people to study in other countries with EU support, which it still does today. Moving into this decade, more and more countries adopted the euro as their own currency, At the beginning of the decade, horrific terrorist attacks took place on September the 11th in New York and Washington, and the EU countries worked together internally to combat future terrorist threats and also joined the US in fighting the Taliban for withholding bin Laden after evidence was presented proving his involvement in the attacks. In 2008, we were hit with the financial crisis which destroyed economies around the world. The EU provided aid to several countries that suffered as a result of the crisis, and established the banking union to ensure safer banks. This was done by including stronger requirements for banks, better protection for depositors, such as you and me, and rules to manage defaulting banks. And this leads us nicely onto Brexit. The process began many, many years ago, where the UK was opposed to adopting the euro in 1999, and felt we would survive better out of the EU as our economy was thriving with our own currency. The real kicker was that immigration in the UK was twice that of the Eurozones because of our economy and the opportunities we presented. The ballot was held because the UK Independence Party, also known as UKIP, formerly led by Nigel Farage, won 13% of the vote in the 2015 elections. 
Now, the only way to slow immigration was to actually leave the EU, as free movement is a fundamental aspect of EU law. And an argument to support Brexit was that we have enough reputation to negotiate trade treaties on our own without the bloc. After a verbal civil war during the voting process, on the 23rd of June 2016, the UK voted to leave the European Union with a vote of 51.9% in favour of leaving and 48.1% against it. All polls and surveys done predicted a small win for Remain, but it was the Conservative government's win that day. We triggered Article 50 on the 29th of May 2017, and that made the decision irreversible, but issues from the referendum would cause chaos in the following years. Now, I want to pause here and just draw your attention to a few things, as during the campaign, there were heaps and heaps of lies told to those that believed we would actually be better outside of the European Union. I want to list a few of those. Boris said that £350 per week would be freed up once our accounts have settled and that uh, that money would go to the NHS. The UK Statistics Authority said that this was a clear misuse of statistics as it confused gross and net contributions. The government has since made budgetary allocations to the NHS, which is amazing, but it isn't the promised amount. Once the referendum was won, literally the next day, Nigel Farage immediately disowned the notion to providing this to the NHS, calling it a mistake, and it took Boris three years to do the same. Jacob Rees-Mogg, who I'll reserve my opinion on as this is a PG episode, said that the UK loses out because other members favour highly regulated and protectionist markets. This is a clear lie, as the UK has only been in a minority on 57 European acts since 99, and been in a majority on 2,474 acts while abstaining from 70. This means that every EU law passed since 1999, the UK only disagreed with 2% of them. It was said that a free trade agreement with the EU should be one of the easiest in human history, and that is a direct quote, which I can only laugh at, as it was only finalised days before the deadline, which was extended countless times over a four and a half year period. The last one I really want to explain is where Brexiters argued that our economy would be stronger after Brexit. The day after the referendum, the UK suffered the largest economic shock since the 1970s among the four largest currencies in the world. Regulatory uncertainty meant that annual growth of exports and goods dropped significantly. The lower value of the sterling made it more expensive to import goods, which also took a hit. I mean, luckily we struck a deal that retains tariff-free trade with the EU that buys more than 40% of our exports and provides over half of our imports. Otherwise, we'd be saying, I told you so, to the no-deal brigade that said no deal wouldn't be that bad. I genuinely could go on for the entire episode explaining these lies, but there's other areas I want to get to. So now I want to disseminate what followed from the referendum. I know it's blatantly obvious what I voted for, and I'll give my opinion on this in a moment, but I can't see how anybody that voted for Brexit is happy with the deal that was provided. After four and a half years, we've only just agreed a deal and not one that people are happy about. And there's been delay upon delay and pushback after pushback on getting this done. Now, there were so many legislative promises that were made that haven't been carried out. And that includes this free trade, which is a positive in itself, but it's far from the exact same benefits that were promised. We've seen lorries stuck in 
truly staggering queues because of the custom checks at borders. And that's just one example. And this happened on day one. Even when it's understood, there's certainly going to be added costs associated with so much new bureaucracy involved. Boris wholeheartedly promised there wouldn't be any checks on Northern Irish trade, which was then overshadowed by Michael Gove reaching a deal with the EU, which does in fact include checks at the Northern Irish border. To me, one of the most worrying and concerning promises that wasn't kept was that security will intensify. Gove said this would be the case in a common statement when he was questioned by the former Prime Minister Theresa May. And this is another failed promise where the deal doesn't give access to the SIS2 database, which has been described as having a major operational impact on our security services' ability to track threats. I mean, the statement he made was so farcical that Theresa May herself couldn't believe what he said. And after the question was asked, she was just staggered. You could see it, was, it went all over the news. And to be honest, I'm staggered myself how not having access to such a prominent database means that there's more opportunity for us to intensify our security. That's literally saying two plus two equals squirrel or something. It doesn't make sense. Then what we also saw was the Tory government throwing out money left, right and centre in the form of contracts to companies that coincidentally had friendly links with the party and wasn't able to deliver. Now, the most evident and genuinely corrupt example I can think of is where they awarded a contract worth $13.8 to a ferry company called Seaborne Freight that didn't have any ships and copied and pasted the terms and conditions from a pizza company to its own website. Subsequently, all the deals struck with ferry companies were cancelled and the termination fee was over 50 million. And this was paid to these companies despite the Department for Transport disagreeing with the National Audit Office by insisting it had a 10% discount. But regardless, the taxpayer had to pay for that. I haven't even got to fishing yet, and that was a major part of every Brexiteer's argument whenever you discuss the topic with them. Under the agreed deal, EU boats can still fish in UK waters until 2026, and after that, there will be annual negotiations between the two where the UK has the right to exclude EU boats completely. However, if this is done, the EU will just raise taxes on exports of British fish to the EU or completely deny UK boats access to EU waters. So while we may have control over our waters, we don't have control over our waters. And in addition to this, British exporters are predicted to lose 28 billion euros this year alone from reduced demand from the EU. Now, I've saved the most in-demand topic for last. Immigration. On the 31st of December, there was an immediate end to free movement of people between the UK and EU. In the deal, we agreed to replace this with a points-based system where EU and non-EU citizens will be treated equally. And to be eligible for a visa, you must earn 70 points. To earn 50 points, you need to have a job offer in the UK and speak an appropriate level of English. And for the last 20, there's a long list of other requirements that can get you to the 70 mark. In a statement, it was said that this would enable the UK to take back control of its borders, reduce overall levels of migration, and give top priority to those with the highest skills like scientists, engineers, academics, and so on. What this also does is apparently cut off the work route for those that are deemed as low-skilled workers 
such as those in construction, so that the UK can move away from cheap labour from Europe. But all this means is that when companies are outpriced by national workers demanding more than the minimum wage, or little Rees-Mogg Jr. not wanting to pick apples in a farm, they'll find new ways to get supposedly unskilled workers to the 70-point mark so that they can pay them the minimum wage. By this, immigration won't really change. The only major difference is that we're going to have a look at the people that come into the country before they do. And that is a good figure, of course. But there won't be the significant reduction in immigration that was promised. The only hope that Brexiters have for this is if the UK economy contracts enough to reduce the opportunities and make it more beneficial for EU workers to apply their trade elsewhere. By that, if there's less construction going on in the UK, construction workers won't come over here because there's not enough opportunity, or if it's too expensive to come over here and they're not getting enough money for it, what's the point in them coming? But also by that, we're losing out just to make sure that they lose out. To me, that just sounds spiteful. There's no logic to it. It sounds like it's more of a personal thing. It's more of a hatred and there's no logic behind the reasoning for supporting such a thing. And while all of this is sceptical, this is all my opinion. Has capitalism proved this sort of point wrong before? Or has it done it on countless occasions in the past? Like there's so many occasions where companies have, have done what they've needed to do to make sure they get the cheapest labour possible so that they can make as much money as possible. And they've not given a damn about the, the national workers. They don't care about UK workers. If the UK workers are charging more for the same job, then obviously they're going to go for the cheaper ones. They're not going to do it for the sake of patriotism, which is the whole basis of Brexit. They just want it to be Britain. The companies don't care about that. They care about profit. So if someone coming from the EU with the same level of skill as someone from the UK and says, I will do that job for X amount per, per hour less, obviously they're going to take it. Now, I'm not saying that this is correct. I'm not saying it's right. I am all for UK workers deserving the opportunity to go and work in their own country. But at the same time, if the UK worker is, is losing out on a job because someone else is better for the company for that job, then why are we complaining? I've missed out on countless jobs in my past. And am I complaining about it? Every person listening to this podcast, every person in the world has missed out on a job because somebody else was better suited for that role whether it's financially, which does come into, uh, it does play a, a part, by the way. That's why whenever you go to a job interview or uh, you up, uh, have a job application, they always ask for your salary and they weigh up whether or not it's worth paying you more or taking a hit for someone slightly less experienced or less skilled for a slightly less wage. Everyone does it. But when it happens to the English person with, again, I'm using the word, entitled, we're so entitled that we feel we deserve everything. And I, I will never understand that. I will never have that mindset. And I don't understand why people still do. Now, immediately, I have to question whether or not people that voted Brexit are happy with the decision they've made. 
while I can't speak for them, the fact that the entire process has been handled so poorly and so many promises haven't been kept. There must have been even a slight deliberation as to whether they made the right decision or not. And if not, I have to question why they voted for it in the beginning. Because if their views were that strong, I want to know what their views were. And I can guarantee their views were focused on immigration. If we have a look at the most recent stats now, they show that only 42% of people in the UK believe we were right to leave the EU. And comparing that to the 47% who said we were wrong, it's a massive difference from the referendum results. Now, I know it's very clear that I voted against Brexit, but there are some positives that we can try and take. For example, we've agreed the tariff-free trade deal which we originally wanted. It's not the same that we wanted and it doesn't have the same expectations, but we have tariff-free trade. So that's one positive to take. Domestic companies with little to no interaction with the EU won't really feel much from Brexit. And some of these are actually likely to benefit from Brexit as a percentage of the content that's produced must be from UK sources to qualify for the tariff-free treatment. So there's opportunity for increased sales among domestic companies. In addition, the hardcore patriots that want to make Britain Britain again have got what they wanted as we have somewhat control over our waters and somewhat control over immigration, though both are very, very far from what was promised. Also, the UK no longer pays into the EU budget, which was a substantial amount of 13 billion euros in 2018. However, the economic cost of Brexit summed approximately $130 billion between the referendum and the start of last year due to the economic damage caused and the money spent on Brexit by the government. And our total contribution to the EU budget has been about $215 billion since we joined in 1973. If you weigh it up, that seems like a pretty steep cost considering we want to stop paying. The last thing I can think of is that EU law no longer automatically applies to UK law. The only laws that we need to obey are the ones that Parliament elect. However, we've already seen that the UK only voted against 2% of EU law since 1999, so I'm not sure how relevant this will actually be. I apologise for the abundance of howevers in the positives, however, there were costs or other circumstances associated that needed to be highlighted. So now we're all familiar and clued up with what Brexit is, what happened, who the EU are, what the benefits are, what the negatives are, and so on, I can give my opinion. I'm asked about this quite a lot, actually, and I want to be clear with this. The idea of the promised Brexit, keyword, the promised Brexit, isn't a bad one, but it's impossible. If we could have everything that was promised, like 350 million per week for the NHS, complete ownership of our waters without needing to share, plus increased imports, exports, trade deals around the world, and a selection of which individual is privileged enough to enter our country, that would be amazing. But the world hasn't ever worked like that. For some reason, the entitlement and the sheer delusions of grandeur of the older generation and the middle class makes Britain seem like an insurmountable superpower, but that idea is only accepted among them, 
not the younger generation or anybody else in the world for that matter. The idea that we can have our cake and eat it too, as coined by Boris during the referendum, is so unbelievably arrogant and a testament to the thought process back when the UK conquered and had an empire. But times have changed. Globalisation has linked every country together in ways that have benefited all of our lives where literally, literally everything around us has links to the positive impact of immigration and international trade. But for some reason, people want these benefits, but to only have British people in Britain at the same time. It doesn't work like that. Let's be real. The sole interest in Brexit was because of immigration, and most of it, not all, but most of it, is stemming from racism, which was evidenced by the increase in hate crime and far-right supporters. I don't want to generalise the public because it's not fair. Everyone has a right to vote and to make sure their voice is heard. But the demographic of those that voted for Brexit was the older generation and the lesser educated. There's a large number of educated people that could read through the deal and not have a clue what it means. But as soon as the referendum came around, suddenly all of these people with racist views turned into politicians with years of experience and PhDs in international business. When questioned, the first thing they say is immigration. Then you ask for a different point, and they always return it to immigration. And this is coming from personal experience, not just from myself, but from other conversations that I've both seen and heard, online and in person. I think the most frustrating thing I've had to explain to people, though, is about the EU's negotiations. If I got a pound for every time I've heard someone say, the EU are being idiots, we said we want to leave and they should just accept it, I'd be able to give the NHS that promise 350 million a week. Why is it we feel that because something works for us and not for someone else, it should be immediately accepted even at the other person's loss? The terms that the UK proposed were horrible for the EU, so obviously they rejected it. Why should they accept it? If I come to you and say, I want your car, I'll give you a tenner for it. Would you accept it because the terms work for me and I feel entitled and deserving of your car? No, of course you wouldn't. There's a large number of people in the country that need to learn the definition of negotiation and understand what a negotiation entails. It might sound like I'm putting down people with the opposing view. That's not the case, because I've had many enlightening discussions with people on the other side and they've taught me a lot and I've agreed with what they've said. But what I can't appreciate is when people use their voice to spout lies or to argue that something that has no base, no evidence, and they just don't understand what they're talking about. And when they're questioned, they get incredibly defensive and it either turns into an argument or completely strays off topic. Again, what I encourage, what I'm trying to do with this podcast is to get people talking. What I want you to do is if you have an opposing view, perfect. Look up the evidence that supports your views and present it in a way that other people can understand. For you to do that, you need to understand it yourself. Don't just look at sources like The Sun or The Metro and come and say that you've got facts proving that Brexit is going to be the best thing in the world. That's nonsense. All of the information that I've used on here have come from official sites. 
and come from official statements. I've listened to them, I've read the documents, and I'm giving you the information. That's how an argument should be presented. I'm not the best at presenting arguments at all. I'm not perfect. But this is how we should be discussing things. This is how we learn. We look at the, the, the knowledge out there. We look at all the resources that we have available to us because it's all free. You're just too lazy to have a look at it properly. And if you did have a look at it properly, maybe you would either change your mind and see it from another person's point of view, or you would be able to convince somebody else of your point of view because you have the evidence to support it. Again, I'm not saying I'm right. I'm, I'm conveying my opinion. I believe I'm right. I'm not saying I'm right over you. If you bring points that disprove me, perfect. Come do it. Do it to other people in a completely civilized manner. It's discussions, bear that in mind. But don't come with the energy where you're just gonna argue. We've been doing it for near enough five years now, longer than five years. It's going on and on and on and on and there's no end to it at the moment. And that's because there is, there's still so much uncertainty with what is going to happen with Brexit. And people are still so fixated on the points that were made beforehand. And you don't understand what's in the deal. Understand what's in it and then come with your argument. This isn't just to people on the opposite side. This is people on, on the, the Remain side as well. Understand the points that are made in the deal. Understand the points that were made beforehand and present those points. I'm not going to apologise for anything I've said in here. It needs to be said. You need to hear it. And I know there's going to be a lot of people on the opposing side, like with the opposing view to my own, that are going to say, I'm incredibly biased. I haven't presented all the positives, rare, 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 all of this stuff. What I want you to do, if that is the case, is name me a positive that I haven't already named. And if I've already named it and I haven't gone into enough detail, you bring me the detail and I'll share that to all of my followers. Because I can guarantee not one of you can do it because I've done it already. I've done my research. I've done it already. I challenge you. Will we survive? Of course we will. Will we have more opportunities? Doubtful. Does the near term look positive? Definitely not. Will there be long-term benefits? Almost certainly. But at the end, will it be worth it? Would we really benefit more in 10 years' time with this Brexit deal more than we would have staying in the EU? We can only wait and see. That's not a question that anybody in this world can answer. I hope you enjoyed the history lesson and have a better understanding of both the European Union and the new Brexit deal. This is likely to have triggered some of you, so please, please, please jump in my DMs on at Kels Talks Podcast on Instagram and we can continue the discussion. Until next week on Kels Talks, stay safe and keep learning.